This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 87. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 87 you're listening to. It's brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com. Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Audio-Technica. Welcome back to what I believe will be another great episode. Uh, this time our guest is producer-engineer Lolly Lewis, who lives in San Francisco, who primarily focuses on recording classical music, generally in remote locations. We'll hear all about that. Lolly's been around the Bay Area for quite some time, and uh, I ran into her at a party, and the minute I saw her, I was like, hey, I have got to get you on my show because I know that she does this two-track, generally two-track classical recording where it's just, you know, a couple, uh, couple of recording rigs, uh, you know, for redundancy, uh, recorded to two tracks, and then uh, edited together to come up with the final product. And yeah, v- very interesting setup and uh, quite different from what I do. So I was like, hey, definitely going to talk to you. So Lolly Lewis coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Uh, let's see what's going on. What did I wanted to tell you about? Oh, I tell you what I, what I wanted to mention. You know, in uh, the conversation with Lolly, um, we talk about this. And this actually had come up with um, Andrew Stern from KFOG uh, in our conversation, although I don't know if it actually made it into the interview. We got to talking about this thing, and I'm a little, you know, a little bit of a late bloomer, so I'm sure many of you out there are going to go, well, of course, it's been around forever. I'm talking about audio over Ethernet, and I know that there's a lot of different kinds of audio over Ethernet, like there's the Dante protocol and all that. What I'm talking about is just straight up, analog going over ethernet and uh you can find like for example there's this um there's this where is it i'm looking at it right here i'm on this website and they have this basically it's a four channel snake it's two it's a box on each end little black box aren't they always little black boxes little black box uh on one side there are four xlr male connectors and on the other side there are four xlr female connectors what connects that is an ethernet cable uh, Cat five or Cat six, I believe, and you can take your audio over um, a decent distance. And I guess because of the twisted pair nature of the Ethernet cable, the noise is quite low. And uh, anyways, this is something that is new to me. Lolly brought it up, and like I say, Andrew Stern brought it up in uh, our conversation. Although I don't recall if, it, like I say, I don't recall if I actually mentioned it in the interview with him. Anyways. I don't know if you all know about this, but uh, I'm going to investigate a little deeper. I think this is kind of fascinating. So, uh, yeah, Ethernet over, or audio over Ethernet, I should say. Anyhow, um, there's that. Uh, Also wanted to mention to you, you know, uh, I've talked about it for a while. You know, I'm a long-term, 18 18 or so years, maybe 19 now, uh, on Pro Tools. And I did a big switch over to Studio One, only really for mixing and mastering. I haven't really got into the workflow of uh, recording a whole band in it because, you know, when I go to a studio, when I track, I usually go to a studio and those studios are equipped with an infrastructure that is based around Pro Tools, of which I'm very familiar, very comfortable with, as many of you are, I'm sure. Anyway, so I had mentioned I, you know, picked up Studio One, uh, the 
latest version they have and have really taken to it. And of course, this podcast is recorded into Studio One. But I've decided to expand my, what I'm calling my DAW uh, language abilities. So not only do I now speak Pro Tools and Studio One, I have just downloaded, uh, purchased and downloaded Logic, which is really interesting, a whole nother animal. I've avoided it for some time. I used to have a copy long before Apple bought it when it was owned by eMagic, and I'm just now kind of getting back into it. Still going to use Studio One to mix, but I have some clients that I've, I think I've mentioned on the show in the past who work in either GarageBand or Logic. Uh, so I figured having Logic uh, capability, not just something I randomly open from time to time, but something I really get to know and understand, uh, I think that that that's going to bode well in the future. And, you know, I got to be honest with you, 200 bucks for Logic, that's really cheap. And I know it's Apple and Apple's whole idea, you know, is to sell you hardware. But, you know, I figure now I've got three DAWs on my on my system. And I know there's a lot of you out there. I got a message from somebody uh, saying, uh, wait till you get to Reaper. You know, I've tried Reaper and uh, it's cool. It's got a little bit of a Windows 95 look to it, but, you know, it's cool. And I know some of you are rolling your eyes. No, it doesn't. Well, it does to me. It's just, it's a little convoluted and, you know, I'm simple. I need a good user interface and I'm just not really into the user interface in Reaper. Maybe I need to revisit it and see it, see it again and maybe, uh, you know, check it out. I won't totally shut the door, but every time I've checked in with it, I've downloaded it, checked it out and gone, oh, okay, it's all kind of the same. Uh, so there, but, uh, maybe at some point. Oh, and here's some news. I know you all know that I'm a, a big fan of mixing in the box and, uh, and I know you're a fan of Andrew Sheps. Uh, that is the most popular podcast in uh, working class audio history in our short history. Anyhow, what I couldn't tell you when I was interviewing Chris Dugan, uh, who works for Green Day was at the end of our conversation, He, we were talking about Andrew and Andrew mixing the new Green Day, which I couldn't talk about at the time, but now I can tell you because it's out. Uh, the new single's out. Bang Bang is what it's called, and Andrew did it. He mixed it in the box, 100%. So if you have a chance, you might want to check it out. And uh, yeah, kudos to our friend Andrew, and kudos to our friend Chris Dugan as well, because um, this is, I think, one of the first self-produced Green Day records in some time, assuming, uh, you know, if we're going back to uh, Lookout Records days of Green Day. Yeah. So there it is. Yeah. So uh, audio over Ethernet, Logic, new uh, Andrew Sheps mixed and Chris Dugan engineered Green Day record single out. And of course, coffee. Let's take a sip before we begin. Mm-hmm. Fully caffeinated, ready to go. Let's get into it. Let's talk to Lolly Lewis here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. We'll start with me welcoming you to the podcast. Thank you for coming out to Scenic Lafayette and uh, and making the trek from San Francisco to here. Happy to be here. So give me a little backstory on your audio history. Okay. So when I was in college, I had a friend who had an, a PA company, and they built gear, and it was back when really it was still pretty uh, out there cutting edge to be building, you know, mixers and, and gear for, uh, for live sound. So there wasn't a lot of off the shelf stuff. 
Well, there was, but you needed it to really do what you wanted it to do. And they were, they would customize for their own application. So they built one of the very first customized monitor boards that was matrix based. So it had, um, you know, multiple ins, totally assignable, multiple outs, and very straightforward parametric EQ. So you could really control individual monitor sends and individual inputs. Uh, that's how I got my first gig was to mix monitors with them for um, Charlie Musselwhite at the Catalyst in Santa Cruz. I think what happened was they needed a mixer one night. They somebody had. Uh, not shown up for, you know, it was a last minute gig. I don't know what happened. Uh, and Will Holt showed up at my house and said, Lolly, I know you can do it. You got to come mix some monitors for me tonight. Hmm. So I did. And I really didn't know a thing about it, but I knew, you know, he knew that I was, you know, involved in music. I'm a singer. I love music. I get it. I'm not afraid of equipment. I had built mound meters, stuff like that, just in their shop, just fooling around. And he said, come uh, come do some mixing. And I mixed monitors with them. And at the Catalyst, then we put in a system when the Catalyst moved down the other end of Pacific Avenue. And I mixed monitors there for a while for a lot of acts. And from there, I got a job at the university in Santa Cruz Um a friend of mine was managing all the uh, concert production stuff, mm-hmm. concert and theater production. So they needed somebody to do sound and, you know, it, turn on a microphone for a lecture. Uh, but then they had a concert hall. And the music department had a bunch of concerts. And so I would get hired to record the concerts in the concert hall. And... Then some of the students were doing an audition tape for uh, a competition in L.A., and it was a piano trio, and we recorded two piano trios, a Beethoven and a Brahms, and I had been taking electronic music in college. That's probably, you know, where I got involved with some of the electronic stuff, and I had learned how to do tape editing, so we were recording to, you know, um, open real tape and editing, you know. In those days, editing was really fun <laughs> because you could really push the limits of what you could get away with. And I got really good at um, tape editing, doing audition tapes, doing electronic music, and splice editing with razor blades so that I really could edit things that were pretty hard to hear in terms of uh, how could you possibly get in there. But I would just try it, you know. If it didn't work, you put it back together. You just have to keep track of all your little pieces of tape. (laughs) So I got my start as a recording person doing these concert recordings and doing audition tapes and subsequently got hired to um, be, I went to Aspen to the first year of the Audio Institute at Aspen. And the second year I was on the faculty and did a ton of concert recording there, mostly just archival recording, not very much editing at all. 
But when I came back to San Francisco in 1980, started my company, Transparent Recordings, bought my first tape deck, bought my first mixer um, with the money that I made from the festival, and I started doing primarily remote recording. Uh, but also, I did a lot of recording of albums, but live in place. So you'd be recording an album on location. I went to Colorado and recorded an album for the Telluride Chamber Players, recorded at uh, Hertz Hall in Berkeley, a wonderful um, flute chamber music record. Uh, I just started started getting little projects from classical artists who knew me, liked working with me, and hired me to show up and record them. So I would create a studio on location, and that's what I got really good at. I then got a job in, let's see what happened. Okay, so I'm in college, and my friend John Haynes said- One of my favorite drummers. Well, of course, because you have some good taste there. Yeah. Um, he was in a band called Pearl Harbor and the Explosions, and I went out on the road with them, quit college, went out on the road, did their front of house sound for a U.S. tour. Then when I came back, I had to finish school, but I had moved up to the city and started, uh, I did the Aspen thing, and so this was all sort of simultaneous. I did finish my degree over the next couple of years, but I had moved my operation to the city and got a job recording concerts at the Conservatory of Music. So again, tons and tons of tons of archival concert recording, but there... <coughs> you had the opportunity to do a lot of audition tapes because all the students had to apply to college and they all needed tapes. And in those days, there was a lot of pressure to edit. Whereas now I think people actually don't do much editing and I'm glad because it's, it, you know, it wasn't, I don't think it was unethical, but, you know, even just cutting one movement together with another, which one's the better version you know, continuing to to cut tape a lot, and I, I uh, also did recordings for a number of um, artists that were there at the conservatory that were doing more elaborate recordings for various purposes, not just straight audition tapes. And it was in the early '90s when digital audio really started taking off, and Sonic Sonic Solutions, the original. Um, I guess there was Diaxis and a few other systems, but I ended up with Sonic because I'd been working. I had edited some stuff with Paul Stubblebine in his studio, and he used Sonic, and I just loved the interface and how my uh, skills with the razor blade really translated so easily into that uh, user interface. And um, so, did you acquire a Sonic system yeah, at that time? Yeah, I had big chunk of dough at that time. At right? that time, it was, and and you know, buying a computer that was capable of running it was a big chunk of dough too. And you know, the one gig drive <laughs> was an absolute boat anchor. It was huge. The early Sonic was an incredibly elegant tool. It was forty four one. It was. Um, two-channel. It was uh, very limited in terms of the production palette, but in terms of editing 
and mastering, it was a glorious tool. You know, I used it a ton. And as they adapted the software over the years to create multi-channel and to create high-res recordings and all that, unfortunately, they lost a lot of the elegance of the original tool. Mm. I still use it because it's what I've got and it's, you know, the user interface is really, um, I love the source destination editing model. Um, the sound is absolutely fantastic. And I don't do a ton of production work. It's rare that I do multi-channel recording. So I don't get too hung up. You know, if it's a problem if I have more than eight channels. You know, they just it just doesn't work for editing more than eight channels. But I don't run into that very often. I really don't. I haven't had that kind of problem, except for a few projects, and I just have to find workarounds for it. I you want know. to talk about that a little bit. So yeah. your world, even to this day, yep. the majority of it is focused on two-channel recording, is it not? It is. And if I get really fancy, I might go four or eight, depending on what the um, you know, what the project is. I've done large orchestra recording on many occasions, and I recall even the even the orchestra recordings i think we must have mixed them down before we edited because i was this was back on the old system so it had to have been stereo editing and i've been doing some records recently that are multi-channel but not more than 4 to 6 channels really don't need it i just did a um a vocal record and it took about three years of sessions. We would do a session, you know, one or two nights. And then six months later, we'd do another one or two nights, do one song on one night, another song another night, put it in the can and leave it alone. And then I'd get the, you know, I'd do the editing. Uh, you know, the, the whole project took literally, I think the first recording for that record was 2012. And we just finished it last year, and it just was mastered, so it's in the release chain now. Wow. So classical recording is like that, though. I'm assuming not all classical recording is to two channels. No, it definitely is not. And and um, there have been a number of paths of uh, kind of conventions of how orchestra is recorded. Orchestra is typically where you're going to use a bunch of microphones. And I like to use a bunch of microphones in orchestra, but I still am going to go with primarily a set of pairs across the front that's going to give me my primary sound. And the rest of the, um, the, rest of the microphones are spot mics. So I try and get a really good general uh, spread of mics across the front of the orchestra and then add in where I know I'm going to be missing, you know, something subtle. I'm, do I need a harp mic? Do I need an oboe mic? Where are the solos? Where are the sections? Sure. You know, and, and there are traditions where there are tons of mics. In fact, that's pretty common. Uh, but you really, even if you do a lot of channels and, you know, my preference is to bring in an engineer and 
have the engineer bring in a system that's capable of doing whatever it is that I want to do rather than because my primary role is as a producer. I'm reading the score. I'm paying attention to the um, the notes and what gets played correctly and what doesn't. And so I need the engineer to be paying entire attention to the technology and making sure the mic placement is right and making sure the phase is all good. And And so I'll let the engineer bring in the rig as long as I know that the, the sound quality is going to be good. So you made that transition from mostly engineer to producer? Well, when I'm recording stereo, it's pretty straightforward. So I can I can kind of do both. I prefer to have an engineer to keep track of tracks and just make notes on the track sheet and then let me make notes on the score. So even if it's just a small session. Mm-hmm. But I would say I made that transition pretty early. That really my relationship to um, this art form of recording is as a partner for the musicians and to uh, to be a producer in the sense of being their partner in creating a performance that's uh, satisfying for them, satisfying musically. So mm. that's my role. And I've been doing, you know, I can still do the engineering and I do a lot of live concert recording. Where you're not producing. Well, I just show up. It's just archival. So there's, you know, I'm in the back of the hall, turn on the, you know, I set up, turn on the recorder and make sure I get everything taped. And then, you know. And I know I said in the car right over, we really don't concentrate on gear, but I'm curious of a setup like that for that style of recording. What generally, when you're just doing the archival two-track stuff, what's that based around? That's based around uh, redundancy. I always have two systems. And so when I'm recording a concert, I I use a Metric Halo ULN2 mm-hmm. for front end, and that goes into a Tascam file recorder. You know, it's recording 96K onto a, a SD card. Okay. It's also going to a CD player, CD recorder. So at the end of the gig, the the high-res files are actually my backup. I take that home. I stash it on the computer. If they ever need it, I can I can bring it up. But I've handed them a CD. They go home. They're happy gigs over. They've got what they came for. If something screws up, I've got my files. So I can uh, make the CD later uh, because stuff happens. If If my preamp goes down i've got another i've got a small lunatech grace preamp that i can use if the mics go down i've got another pair of mics you know i've got a lot of redundancy in live recording because you know they're only going to play it once if i don't have the tape roll in i can't ask them to stop what do you do in the case of uh the cd running out uh well i've got the file I see. So, so you can make it. You can you can make a swap and. Well, I'd give them the file. La- I'll give them the CD later. Most co- it's very rare for a concert to have more than an hour and fifteen minutes worth of music on one half. So typical classical concert is going to be somewhere between forty five and an hour on a half. Mm. So that's perfect. You throw a CD on there. Uh, last uh, Sunday 
I did Bach B minor mass with the American Bach soloists, and it fits. It's a two-hour concert. It's a long concert, but it but it's a little under an hour for the first half and a little bit over for the second. So that you know that's fine for CDs, and that's that's it's very unusual. And I always just check with the artist to see. If either portion of the concert is going to be over an hour and 15, then either we find a place where I can change CDs or I just tell them you'll get the, you'll get the third CD later. I'll, you know, I'll make that when I get home. Interesting. Do you find it harder and harder to source blank CDs of a certain quality over time? I get the Tayo Yudens from Amazon. I can still get them. They still make those. Yeah. Wow. And I still. I have, a, you know, a stack stashed, and I don't use a ton of them because mostly I deliver, um, if it's a project, I'm delivering it electronically. So it's only for concert CDs where I actually use them. So I'll use two for a show, and uh, it's getting a little harder. Mm. But th I still can get those. At least last time I checked, I could get them on Amazon. Interesting. And Again, back to your setup, is it yeah. do you run it off the same power or is it run off of two sources? No, of power? no, no. I've got it's it's pretty straightforward. I always show up with enough time to get everything set up and tested. Um so I roll in with uh two cases. One case has the um preamps and the uh digital recorder, and the other case has the CD recorder, and then I have all the cables and everything. All I have to do is connect one set of cables across there. I've, I love my Ethernet snake. So I've got four channels of microphone on Cat6 cable. Wow. I've been um, it's hearing awesome. about this um, previous guest, um, Andrew Stern, who works over at KFOG. He turned me on to this concept of analog audio over Cat6 cable. You can get four channels on one Cat6 cable, and you just plug the mics directly into the converter on the front end, and then you plug the Ethernet into the converter on the other end that's plugged into the – it's already pre-plugged into my preamp. So it's, it's really uh, – it's a very simple setup. I can be set up in about half hour. And this is not a Dante thing. Right. No, this isn't. This, this is just, just analog audio. Yeah, over. it's straight up analog audio. The the only conversion, I mean, you know, there are these boxes that that I don't know if they multiplex it or what they do. I don't know how the, but it's not digital. It's analog, and I have um, thirteen foot stands, really heavy duty stands, so I can get my microphones. I get it. I have a nice gray space bar. So I have a really, I have a number of different stereo bars, depending on what kind of uh, spacing I want the mics to have. But pretty typically, you know, I put them less than a foot apart. And uh, it's just, you know, space pair. It's not even anything particularly fancy. I suppose it's a modified ORTF. Mike, choice-wise, do you, do you kind of go through different ideas over time and try out different mics? Yeah, but... Uh, I have a pair of Sennheisers. I, it's that 8000 series cardioids, and they're fabulous. They're very open and clear, and they seem to work for everything. So as far as just a concert recording, that's what I'm going to use. That's always going to be my main pair. Mm. And then if I need additional mics, I have um, a number of other mics that I, I'll go to. 
I have a pair of 414s that are just really, really amazingly good, surprisingly good, but they're Everybody says, oh, 414s are horrible, but then they hear mine and they say, gee, these are the <laughs> only ones I've ever heard that I like. <laughs> anyway, so again, if I have a big job where it's multiple microphone, I'm going to bring in an engineer anyway. Hmm. So, But gonna, for the smaller jobs, it's just you and this this particular setup. Yeah. Yeah. I can roll it in, you know, on a little cart. It's very, very portable. I also have... a. You know, I have the rig if I want to do multi-channel. I have a ULN8, Metric Halo ULN8, and a Joko multi-track recorder. Oh, yeah. And and there's my redundancy again, because I'll record to the computer, but I'll also record to the Joko. I just, I never trust only having one device when uh, you're live. Do you, do you ever go through moments where you're like, I want to do this, but I want to shrink it down even further? Well, yeah. In fact, um, I'm so happy with my rig right now. It's so portable. I mean, I used to bring in a Studer board and a, you know, great big Nagra T audio. I mean, it's a ton of cases and just the cable. Oh my God, pounds and pounds and pounds and pounds of cable. And it's really wonderful to be able to roll in and have this very tidy little compact system, but it's still pretty significant. I have tried smaller recorders and different things, but you know my consideration is a sound quality first. So, you know the the Grace preamps are nice and small. I don't know if you've seen that Lunatech. It's I don't know. It's half rack thing. Yeah, uh, and that's super nice, but it's not. It's a V two, so it's not a converter. It's just the preamps. And the metric halo gives me the digital conversion. So that's nice in one rack space. So let's talk about the economics of the, of this whole thing. Yeah. Um, do you have a, an economic philosophy as it relates to the equipment when it pertains to you being the engineer? Do you try to always try to go for the highest end thing or do you try to have a balance of well, maybe I, I, money versus high end? I, this is a good illustration. I have a client who recently wanted some uh, reverb on a, on, he had a number of recordings. We're putting together an album. I'm not a mastering engineer. I can, I can master a record, but if it's something serious and, and somebody wants it to, to have, you know, magic on it, I'm not going to try and do it. That's just not. That's not your. That's bad. not my thing. And there's guys that do such a great job. So why not give them the work? Well, this was a situation where he just really wanted a little bit of reverb on something, and he had no budget at all. It's not something that's my primary, not just my primary source of income, but my primary activity. You know, I'm an, I'm a producer and editor, so. But, you know, I wanted something, and, and I realized that these days you can get a decent plug-in without, you know, going out and buying some Bricasti or some wacky piece of equipment. I'm not going to spend that money, but that's because I'm not a mastering engineer. I'm not telling anybody I'm a mastering engineer. I can buy a Lexicon plug-in that does exactly what I need it to do for the kind of spectrum of clients that, you know, maybe it's a kid's audition tape and they just please put a little bit of reverb on it. So that makes sense. 
Um, but for microphones, for preamps, for anything that makes a difference in the signal chain, I just I always try and get the best I can. Makes and I sense. and again, I don't I don't need a lot of bells and whistles. I need the basic thing. You know, my first mixer was a Studer. Yeah. That's not a cheap thing. No, no, no. But that's that's how it worked. What about how you charge clients? And I'm not looking for specific dollar amounts, but right. how do you handle it? Well, let me tell you that I have had maybe in, in a pretty decent career of being a music producer, I've had maybe two or three years where I supported myself entirely by recording. I have always had other paths for making money. I just came off a five-year job at San Francisco Symphony running an education program for them. I worked at the conservatory for 12 years. I did a ton of individual consulting in computers for people who wanted, you know, help with their computers. I've always had other ways to make money. Although I'm making money recording and I feel like, you know, there's certainly guys more expensive than me, but I don't really compromise that much with my rates. I have my rates. And, you know, if it's a project I want to do, I might want to negotiate it. But typically, you know, I see my income stream as coming from the other sources and the recording income stream stays for recording. So that if I need gear, that's where that money goes. And I really try and, you know, I can't always keep a good little savings buffer, but that's what I try and do. And there's just not enough work in classical recording to support more than a, a really small handful of people in this town. Hope you're enjoying my conversation here with Lolly Lewis here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. But I do want to take a sponsor break with our friends over at Audio Technica. I want to talk to you a little bit about turntables. Uh, you know, Audio Technica does offer a pretty wide variety of turntables, variety of costs as well. And depending on what your involvement is with vinyl, uh, whether you're a casual listener or you're maybe a DJ or you're uh, maybe an archivist, uh, you should check out what they have. There's a there's a lot of great uh, options that they have. And of course, Audio-Technica has been in the transducer business for some time. So if you do get yourself an Audio-Technica turntable, uh, it will either come with or you can choose a different cartridge, of course, to uh, use with that. So head on over to uh, audio-technica.com and uh, click on the turntables area and uh, take a look at that. There's uh, There's some cool options. So yeah, make sure you head on over there, check that out, maybe uh, and, and possibly find the turntable that works for you. You know, whether you're moving into uh, maybe some archiving work, uh, or you're just wanting to, you know, revisit a vinyl collection or start a new vinyl collection, I think this is a good way to go. So be sure to check that out. Well, let's get back into it with Lolly Lewis here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Have you tried to focus primarily on classical recording? Yeah, and occasionally I break out of it, and it's really fun, but um, the artists that I know and the artists that know me, you know, it, it's really a classical world. I love working in the studio, and last year I had two jobs in the studio. One of them was um, classical, and one was not. 
and uh, we did them both at Fantasy. And it was super fun for me to, you know, to be the producer in the studio and have the engineer and not have to think about it for a second, except does that sound the way I want it to sound? And and I, I really did enjoy that a ton. But those projects just don't come around because most people, if they go in the studio, it's expensive and they're not going to spend the money to to have to pay a producer in addition to an engineer. They're very typically either going to have a friend produce it or a member of the band is producing it or it's just something where they don't think of producing as a separate thing that they need. They don't think of it as um, a, an integral element of the recording process. It's too bad because, you know, I think that the the role of the producer, and particularly in classical music, but I think it's true across the board, is to be that audience for a recording where you're playing for someone. You're still, even though there's no, you know, it's not necessarily live, there's, there's someone listening. There's someone responding emotionally. Mm-hmm. You know, recording is a wacky thing to do. I don't know about you. I don't listen to recordings. I don't listen to records. Not that interested. I love live music, and I go to a ton of concerts. Hmm. And to me, the experience of a live concert is something completely different from listening to a recording. I'm of the opinion that I think recording people should spend more time involving themselves in scenarios like you're talking about, going to see live music or playing live music. Because I think that that really informs sonically what you do in recording because you always have the organic the organic viewpoint of what it should sound like well i'll take it even a step further the experience of of sound the experience of listening to sound is always spatial and even in you know sitting here in this room the characteristics of the room are what you hear. The sound, the actual air vibrations that are created when we speak, are they exist in the whole air of the room. That's what you experience. Mm-hmm. And when you go to a live show, that's what you experience. You experience this. Um, Ted Hearn the other day, he's a great uh, composer, and he was talking about... Uh, the orchestra creating the sound monster. I just love that. It is. It's this monstrously cool audio experience, oral experience that is hugely three-dimensional. And in a big hall, the, the depth and dimensionality and emotional content of that experience is only found there. You don't get that anywhere else. It can't be recorded. It can't be duplicated, which doesn't mean you can't make a really good recording that has tremendous communication potential, but it isn't that. It isn't the experience of hearing an orchestra for a lot of reasons, but primarily because unless you have, you know, a hundred speakers and a concert hall size room, it's never going to sound like that. 
Yeah, because when you see, at least when you see an orchestra, and actually even if you're seeing, you know, a four-piece rock band, yep, sitting or standing in front of that that group of musicians playing, uh, obviously you're experiencing so much more because you're feeling vibrations yep. in the surfaces around you, in the chair you sit in, yep. in the floor you stand in, right, and uh, the air coming at you, and exactly the, 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 the surfaces, the surfaces vibrating the sure. whole, and when you have a great big orchestra piece where even you know, in San Francisco, even the the walls of Davies Hall can't are compressing. The sound is compressing because it's too small for that sound. Uh, the room's too small for that sound. Mm-hmm. That is incredibly exciting, and there is nothing like it. So as a music lover and someone who believes in the emotional power of music um, to communicate fundamental human value human uh content i don't know quite how to describe it it's emotional i think emotional is a shortcut but sound and listening is an entirely emotional experience and we feel it physically and we are in some kind of communion with not only artists who are playing but in classical music the artists who composed it it's like diving into the source of our shared humanity. That's what music is for me. People who play music at a skill level that professional classical musicians do, and this is sounds elitist. I think professional jazz musicians, I think really, really great musicians of any genre. But the thing about classical music is it has this tradition of style that has so specific emotional uh, content that if you're if you're playing Schubert, it means something very, very specific. And each artist that plays it feels that and can say it in a new way. It's still Schubert, but it comes through this person. So you're almost channeling this emanation from the past. And with a level of skill and sensitivity to what the composer has to say, but it's like you're making it up right now. You have to feel it on that level of genuine empathy. And if you're playing with other people, that's a shared empathy. It's really an incredible, magical enterprise. And so the producer's job, in my view, is to be a witness of that and to, uh, you know, to hear it, to honor the uh, potential for musical expression that is happening in that moment and support the people who are doing it so that they can have, even in a studio, even in a room with no people around, they can have an experience that's fundamentally communicative and not just for themselves but to express that perfect realization of this musical emanation that was composed if you really dig deep here and you think about you take uh, a piece of music composer's been dead for hundreds of years hundreds of years and you put it in front of a group of people and you play it by having them look at the um the sheet of music it's 
I don't mean to sound all metaphysical, but there's like a ghostly element to it. There totally is. As, and as I've, you talk about it, I'm 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 realizing, oh yeah, because you're you're playing something that was written long ago. But the notation is this roadmap. And I've had the experience singing. I remember this very vividly uh, in a performance of Handel Messiah. And I can't remember what it was we were singing. But first of all, it felt like I had written it. It felt like I personally had written it right then. It was it was so natural. It was the only thing you could possibly sing at that moment. And it felt like it had come from, from my own mind. The way that Handel put the notes on the page, how can it be that meaningful that it transcends time and space and gives the performer this roadmap to achieve a musical expressiveness that crosses the boundaries of time and space completely and shares a, a common emotional humanity with not only Handel hundreds of years ago, but the audience that's hearing it right now or the people who are singing it or playing it right now. It's very genuine. It's interesting, too, just as a comparison. Okay, so let's say we take, uh, you know, a, a piece of music that is well over 100 years old, and we look at the music on paper and we reproduce that by playing it. The way that is judged as compared to, say, if somebody were to recreate something that has already been recorded right. with audio. So if I were to put together a band and say, hey, we're going to do Beatles songs, right? there would be, I feel, a harsher judgment of how those Beatles songs are reproduced because it's it's been in it, it didn't start out necessarily on a sheet of paper in the same sense that classical music did it started out mainly as if we take the white album the white album uh it's entirely electronic music isn't it it's it's it it was created for that medium yes exactly and it's judged and your performance is based your and, performance is judged based on that original medium right and the white album for instance or anything that's that iconic that we all have in our minds, when I hear the first chord, I'll know whether it's the original recording or a cover, or, you know, I, I have that sound embedded in my consciousness because I've listened to exactly that thing so many times. And the way that it was created was fundamentally an electronic music sculptural assignment rather than a uh, an ensemble assignment. Now, the early Beatles records where they're really still playing together or go back to the uh, really great jazz recordings that were where everybody's in a room and everybody's playing. So it's, it's genuinely an ensemble experience. That's one thing. But the recordings where it's, you know, you go to like Steely Dan or something in that period where Everything was isolated and everything was manipulated on tape or electronically. So you have a different assignment. It's a sculpture assignment, in my view, rather than an ensemble assignment, even though there's multiple players. It's not, I heard that Miles Davis wouldn't give anybody the music for the songs they were going to play in the sessions because he wanted it to be the first time they played it. 
He wanted it to be that fresh. And you can hear that on the Miles Davis Quintet records, that they're just in a room exploring something together. I think those records, at least for me, those records are unique in that I can listen to them and have a music experience that I think is as deep as any music experience you can Read have. off of a sheet of paper. Sure. Okay. Or heard in a concert hall. Okay. I think they're fundamentally musical and it comes through in the recording. That's unusual because your example of the Beatles is perfect because they those records are the embodiment of that particular emanation, musical emanation, even though even in their earliest stuff, you know, they're they're wacky kids in the studio, but you <laughs> but you still you you feel that on the record. And uh to your point about how we think of performance judging against a recording, I heard um um this cellist, Maya uh, I'm not gonna be able to pull up her name. Um but she's a classical artist, really good cellist. But she does um, a lot of very experimental cross-genre stuff. And she played, I was at this conference, and she played us a recording of um, Kashmir, the Led Zeppelin song, that she's got a drummer, but everything else is her on cello. And it's pretty good, but hey, it ain't Led Zeppelin. You know, so you have that in your mind, and you say, well, why would you do that? Then towards the end of the song, she started adding in some really exotic, almost klezmer kinds of sounds that made me think of the original and sort of hear it with new ears because she was shedding light on what the song was about. She wasn't just doing a cover. So that was interesting. But at first it was like, well, why would you do it? Because I've got that record. And I really like it. You know, it's almost like movies and, and uh, plays. I mean, if you have you yes. know, a play, uh, I don't know. Uh, Hamlet. Okay. So if you perform Hamlet, there's so many different ways it could be interpreted. And you do it and you know how you dress the setup, if you go you know full-on production or very minimalist. And then let's say you recreate that. So there's people I think ha can have an appreciation for that. But I'll be damned if somebody tries to redo Star Wars. Yeah, can right. Right. But but now that's partly because what's the source material? The source material is the movie. Yes. Whereas uh, I, just, I just saw – now this is wacky, but uh, Henry V, okay? Now I have – I haven't seen it a ton, but I've seen the Kenneth Branagh version, and it's so exciting. He has this big speech, and it's very, very exciting, and he's he does it in a fairly traditional way. He's rousing the troops, and, you know, it's all really um, big. And then I just saw a version quite recently with Tom Hiddleston, and he does that scene almost in a whisper. He's talking to his closest advisors, they're sitting very close together, and it's so intimate and so unexpected. And you just say, that's a completely, it's a revelation. It's a completely different way of thinking about it. But the source material is the words. The source material's on the page. There's not, you have tremendous latitude to interpret. It's not 
you know, stormtrooper's a stormtrooper. <laughs> what are you going to do with that other than get in a white costume? You right, know what I mean? Right. So, so yeah, it's the, it's, and, and again, it's not, I think it's very dangerous to say, well, classical music is deeper. It's, it's, you know, it, it's more sophisticated. It's got more going on. I think that, you know, for me, who has spent her life, I love music of all kinds, but I'm particularly drawn to classical music, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about it and listening to it and studying it. So for me, that's deep, but so is jazz, you know, and so is rock, but it's really different. It's an emotional uh, connection to a language that classical music has this incredibly sophisticated range of language potential that has to do with, with meaning and emotional content that is, um, it's just so broad. The, the specifics of what is communicated in a piece of classical music in, in a great masterwork is, is singular. It can only be said that way. It can only be said with that instrumentation. It can only be said by people who can play it well. So, you know, with all this history of hundreds and hundreds of, of pieces of music that are, uh, there to be interpreted by artists and and it's so different from something that is made to be heard this way only like you know a recording mm -hmm. you know i mean i have uh rock records i absolutely love i mean cashmere is a perfect example because that's a great record and and it exists on that record you don't necessarily want to go to a show and hear somebody play a version of that song because why wouldn't I listen to the record it's better there and and some artists I think pull it off more faithfully I think I mean if we're talking about Led Zeppelin I mean I will say that uh at the Kennedy Center honors uh right. heart with Jason Bonham on drums doing Stairway to Heaven uh you know, when I hear Stairway to Heaven now on the radio, I'm like, oh, Jesus, I can't hear this again. Right. But when I saw that, I mean, you see the emotion, the, the emotional yes. connection. It's kind of like a hybrid of, um, here we are referencing a piece of music that was recorded on a tape medium. It's being recreated in a live setting. Right. Uh, with the impact, I think, of a classical concert really clearly having an emotional uh, yes. impact on the members of Led Zeppelin as they sit in the audience and watch. And I'm sure if you look at uh, yes. uh, David Letterman and President Obama and anybody else who's there, I'm sure they yes. had the same reaction because as I watched it, it brought a tear to my eye. Sure. I was like, wow, this is powerful. Right. And, and I think that gets to the heart of the power of music and that, yes, it's about particular people and remembering John Bonham and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And just the here are these iconic guys that are being celebrated in a really honorable and honest way. And that's very moving. But music's at the heart. Music is at its heart an emotional medium. It gives you 
uh, these moments of pure expressiveness. It's abstract. It's there and it's gone. The sound experience, the participation as an audience member in the experience of this sound filling a room and having something to say that's very specific. To me, it's emotional, but one way or the other, it has narrative content and and communicative content that brings people together in feeling something together that is very specific. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true of any genre of music that people are brought together in experiencing something very specific. God forbid we <clears throat> talk about music on a podcast about audio. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> which is, this is great. But so with the, all this power and emotion that we speak of, how do we, or how specifically do you try you, your best to bring that to the recorded medium? As a listener, as a producing partner, mm-hmm. my job is to constantly evaluate whether I'm being convinced by the performance. Do I believe it? Do I hear what they have to say? Am I getting confused by it? Now, I'm not always right, but if there's confusion, gee, I wasn't sure what you meant in that phrase. Who's leading that phrase? What's what's going on there? What's the key? And I and as I listen, you know, would you want to try taking that repeat a little quieter? Let's just try something, because I didn't feel like it was really grooving right there. Let me ask you. So, you know, when we see live performances, quirks and mistakes and stuff happens, passes right by us. We take in the whole performance. So why in the world of recording do we not just treat it in the same manner? Well, that is a great question. I've thought about this a ton. When you're in the room with somebody, you can't help rooting for them. You really want it to be successful. You want it to be successful because it's more fun for you and because really the artist is walking a tightrope. Going out and playing in front of people and, you know, the more difficult it is, it's just like watching these girls at the Olympics, man. You want them to not fall down. Right. You want them to have really successful routines. You want it to be, you know, stick that landing. Music is exactly like that in the sense of somebody comes out and creates with this little wooden box. They create a, a whole world right in front of you that you get to experience and you're sitting there and marveling at it. Even if they have some little mistake, I don't care. You're doing the most amazing thing. You're not, we're not taking any demerits for that. That's so glorious. And partly it's because you're rooting for them. You're there and you want them to succeed. Partly it's because in that sonic zone, you experience the intention i mean assuming they don't completely screw it up you <laughs> you you experience their intention that emotional connection and it's so incredibly gratifying that who cares about the little things what you care about assuming they're making it happen you know you just are so thrilled to be a part of that and when i 
worked at the conservatory and I heard student ensembles and students or student soloists, and they would be just absolutely hanging on by their toenails. They could barely quite do it. And, you know, no way were they as good as a seasoned professional, but, oh man, it was so thrilling to hear them, to witness them succeed in this amazing, magical tightrope act. But on a recording, first of all, if I don't like it, I'll just take it off. Nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's not an artist there that I have to respect or insult or have an interaction. You're having an actual interaction. Even if they don't know you're there, you're just out in the darkness of the hall. They, they, it's, it's very sensual. They, it's felt. And your connection with them is real. And... um and everybody's quiet. Everybody's part of it. It's a thing. But on a recording, since you have this distance, you aren't connected with that person. You're simply listening. So you have an objectivity that allows you to be incredibly critical, and it makes a, it can really interrupt the flow to hear a mistake. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute, what was that? And you don't have the connection with the artist to keep your mind going forward. Here's another analogy for you. Maybe it's like, you know, if you're, a, I don't know, if you're a basketball fan, Golden State Warriors. Yeah. When you are watching a live game and you see Steph Curry go for a shot, that compared to watching old video footage of Steph Curry going for that shot are two different emotional Absolutely. Things. What's the investment? The investment is in the live thing you're experiencing a moment with other people watching you you want him to make the shot and you don't know if it's going to happen and in the review process you're not emotionally invested and you're more critical right. it's more of a even if an, it's an you, analytical thing that's right and you know i can watch joe montana throw the ball to um to Clark and have him jump up and catch it. And it's so thrilling every time, but it's not the same as when it happened in the game. Right. It's not the same because when it happened, it was a miracle. And when music happens, it is a miracle. But when you're watching it again, you say, wow, how cool that he was that tall. If he hadn't been that tall, he never would have been able to catch the ball. So you're you're thinking about it with a different mind. Okay, so I was out last night uh, playing some music. And uh, before we went on, um, we were watching um, Michael Phelps swim in the Olympics. Right. And all of us are like on the edge of our seat right. as he, he won. Makes it. And now I think back to myself, okay, now if I were to just review that, I'd, I, I would be analytical. I would be like, oh, okay, I see. Right. That's how he's doing it. Okay. Right. And I think this is also what, it's one of the real challenges of recording. Now, my interest is music. I don't much, you know, I have technology that's the highest end I can possibly have because my interest is in having the music come through, but I don't care about the technology. What I care about is the music. In a recording session, the technology just has to get out of the way. It has to be perfect, but it can't be in the way. And the experience as a producer is everything's fine, right? We can do this. Great. And now let's go. And my, my job then is to be in that communication zone with the artist 
allowing the artist to have as much as possible an investment like a concert where if I screw it up, you'll know. The audience will know. The audience will care. So I need to be there caring about the outcome as much as I need to be there paying attention to the details. Maybe I'm dreaming. I feel like the artists need that, that that there's somebody there that really cares whether or not it achieves a, a level of uh, emotional authenticity and technical satisfaction. I also think maybe the challenge is also to get them out of that analytical viewpoint as they hear a recording and right. get them to that rooting for or yep. seeing themselves in the music. Like, yep. And, so, and not all music recordings do that. And even some of the ones that are less hi-fi and more, I'll take Fugazi records, for example, and uh, or uh, Rage Against the Machine. When when I hear music like that, it just really makes me go, yeah. Just it does it something. It touches you. It, do, it does touch me. Yeah. Um, and old, that's old punk rock records do that to right. me. And it's really important that whatever it is you're trying to get at, whatever, whatever that feeling or, or uh, the integrity of that statement is as pure as it can possibly be, so it will have the effect that you want it to have. And something you just said about how you want to get the artists away from being analytical, because I think when you're in the studio particularly, and there isn't an audience, you start to evaluate your own playing in a way that separates you from the... It, it can separate you from the ability to immerse musically. So you're playing the notes right, but you're not actually... You're not emotive, yep. right? Well, and actually, I was thinking of more of the audience being analytical. You don't want the audience to right. listen to it and go, "Oh, that's nice." Right, but but for me, it's on both sides of that. Mm. That if you're if if you can maintain a level of passion and genuine immersion as you're recording in in the players as you're recording, then it's much more likely to be expressive of passion and integrity when it comes out the speakers for somebody to listen. So at the end of the day, it's, it's really not about, um, obviously we want the recordings to go down smoothly, meaning from a technical perspective, but yeah, the production and the, the role of producer, the role of whoever it is being the cheerleader and being the yes. person who roots for the musician is to get them to emote in such a way that it transcends the medium and makes and engages the audience on the other side of the speaker in the same way that it would do uh, in in a live setting. That's right. And you get as close as you can. Yeah. And I think um, there are probably a lot of classical musicians who would be rolling their eyes at the idea that we need them to be emotional while they're trying to play, you know, Haydn's string quartets. But frankly, I think that the music demands it, that if you really take the, the fundamental... Um, uh, expressive content of the music itself and take it seriously, you are beholden to this tradition, uh, not really so much tradition, but to this, to the integrity of the musical statement that Haydn had in mind. You have to make it your own. You have to understand why you're playing those notes. But 
if you can convince me as a producer that you do know why, then I think you're going to be successful uh, convincing your larger audience. So that's why I feel like that's my job to be there, um, to be there and help them uh, have that sounding board, somebody to to really hear when they're being authentic. One more question before we wrap up. So classical music is obviously, you know, uh, there's a, in fact, I'll just cite this. There's a David Byrne book out there. Yeah, how I've music, read it. How music is made. And he talks, he goes into, you know, music, uh, you know, certain classical, certain composers made, uh, they composed based on uh, playing certain music, certain types of music in a church, certain types of music uh, outdoors. Yes. Um, yes. You know, uh, the Ramones playing at CBGBs to kind of, you know, be the, uh, the, uh, the other side of that, do you ever get into situations where you're recording a classical group of people and you're just, and you, and you realize these people are in the wrong venue and this is the, not the right place to be recording? Oh, yeah. They play well, the recording gear is working well, but it's just the wrong. It's never going to work. Well, yes, that happens. And what we try and do is um, avoid it by testing. So you go in a room and you test it and you see uh, most classical artists would be able to walk into a room like this room would be too small for a string quartet. <laughs> yeah. You know, they, they could fit, but the sound would it's obvious. So you you walk into a room, you might bring your violin and just play a few notes. You you would know whether you're getting back what you need to get back from the acoustic space in order to be able to have a gratifying artistic experience as an artist. That's the fundamental thing. If it's too big, like I've recorded a bunch of stuff at Skywalker, and to me, that room is too neutral. It has no character. So you need to create character in there. You sort of have to, you have to use structural elements in order to create character because it's too big. I like a room that's big enough that has resonance but but has character because it's an instrument. The room itself is an instrument. So in just in terms of acoustics, there's got to be a good fit. But also, I think it's 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 so part of the classical uh, um, tradition to play music in appropriate rooms mm -hmm. that if you were going to be recording, you would just naturally, that would be your first step. You wouldn't try. I've done I've done some pretty good string quartet recordings in rooms that were a little bit too small, and you can add some reverb and you can get away with it. But sometimes you just go, gosh, it's tight. Or there's not enough ventilation. It's too hot, so you have to take a lot of breaks. You know, there are a lot of things that you just have to adjust to with classical because instruments go out of tune or because... And even in other recordings, I mean... You walk into a room, you know, like if you walked into this room and the yeah. goal was to get, you know, once again, another Led Zeppelin reference. Yeah. If we wanted to get when the levee breaks, it ain't happening. It's not going to happen room. in this room. <clears throat> right. There's no way. And, and there's no amount of processing later that because live artists, this is a really important thing, actually, in terms of recording, live acoustic recording, the artists are responding to the sound that they hear. So... If the room is very reverberant, they'll they'll hear that. They won't play the next note till till it's time. The room itself can have an effect on tempo and and rubato and how you play, 
how you articulate notes because the room is the instrument. So if you're trying to put that on later, it won't make any musical sense because they're not playing in response to what you're putting on after. And that's really critical in classical music because it's an experience of listening. It's not, I mean, you know, there's con music concrete, there's, there's classical music that is constructed. But when you're talking about ensemble music where people are playing, they're always responding to what they hear. And the room is what they hear. So the room is part of the instrument. Good note to end on. Excuse the pun. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Lolly. Yeah, my pleasure. This was fun. Yeah, good conversation. There you have it. Lolly Lewis here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. That was a really fun conversation to have, and I appreciate uh, Lolly coming over. So thanks to you, Lolly, if you're listening. And uh, that's it. We're out of time. So let's thank everybody involved. How about thanking Cliff Truesdell and Chuck Smith and Cole Williams, my compadres who help out with the podcast in their various ways. want to thank our sponsors, Gearslets.com, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Audio Technica. And, of course, I always like to thank you all for listening. I appreciate it. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.